So when they asked me for a title for the sermon, I told them Transcendental Moments. But I could just as easily have titled it How on Earth I Came to Be a 21st Century Conquer Transcendentalist. Because July seems to be Transcendentalist Month in Concord, with the Village University, the Thoreau Society annual gathering, a quick gathering of the Emerson Circle, and then the meeting of the Louisa May Alcott Society. It seems like this is an excellent time to channel these transcendentalists who've come to us from around the world and practice experiencing your own transcendental moments in the wildness of Concord's woods, trails, and transcendent settings. So this consider this a two-part sermon. The first part I'm going to do here with you now. The second part you have to go off into the woods and do on your own. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who separate the world into two kinds of people and those who don't. Of course, we all know there are 10,000 kinds of people or even more in the world. And yet, and yet we are fundamentally all the same. The same yearnings, the same experiences. But how we experience the world is surprising. Our daily experience of life varies widely across cultures, across consciousness, and across time. The transcendentalists developed a notion of self-culture as a way to lift ourselves up into a better consciousness, one that's more life-giving and flourishing for us. So I want to speak this morning about how we cherish, cultivate, these transcendental moments that make life more meaningful. They, they occur to all of us, perhaps even as frequently for all of us, but most of us don't notice most of the time. I want to lift up the opportunity to really engage with these experiences. Now, the first time that I consciously expected a transcendental experience was at the age of 13, when I was lined up to do my fertile immersion baptism and become an American Baptist. I had read my Bible religiously, so I knew pretty much what to expect. As it says in the Gospel, just as he was coming up from out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. I think it seemed pretty cool. <laughs> now, I was pretty sure that the particular affirmation they recorded of Jesus receiving from God on his baptism, you are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased, was probably unique to his situation but I was still counting on some sense of something happening. Maybe not the heavens opening, maybe not the scent of the Holy Spirit, but at least some warm sense of feeling of salvation and perhaps even well done, good and faithful servant. Some response from the divine mystery that says, you're doing it right. Welcome to the party. You can imagine my disappointment when after being prayed over, plunged beneath cold flowing water, I emerged merely breathless, wet, and cold. No discernible change. The heavens did not open, the earth did not quake, there was no perceivable descending of spirit, and I felt no different than I had before. I began to become afraid. This disappointing lack of transcendence shook my confidence and made me wonder whether Christianity, as was being practiced by Rhode Island Baptists in the 1960s, could bring me into true oneness with the divine mystery. That's what I sought. I was too young to worry about heaven and hell one day. What I wanted to know is how do I get into intimate relationship with the divine and have that sense of intimately experiencing God's love. 
and I was disappointed. That summer, I was at a Baptist youth retreat where they spent the morning in a dark, stuffy room watching teenage indoctrination videos. This was when they wanted to make sure we didn't get exposed to drugs or rock and roll or any of those things that may lead us astray. When we took a break late morning, I dashed from the room into the bright sunlight of the surrounding forest. And the most amazing thing happened. I noticed the path was shining before me. The leaves on the trees were emitting light. The very trunks of the trees were luminous. The forest burst into song, which I can only guess was the music of the spheres. My eyes were dazzled. I saw more shades and nuances of color than I'd ever seen before. My ears could perceive and distinguish sounds at greater distances. This was ecstatic bliss. This is what I'd been looking for. My hands and arms felt like waves of pure energy. Everything was pure energy. I was pure energy. One with all being, at peace with all that could be perceived. This was my first truly transcendental awakening. I felt both deep joy and awe. This feeling of unity with everything was pure heaven. I was one with all sentient beings, emerging from the wildness of nature, a child of the universe. And each bird was this a beautiful and brought a message from beyond. This sepia-colored existence that I had known had suddenly exploded into technicolor. I wanted more of that. You can imagine this tech transcendental moment knocked my worldview askew. I had experienced oneness with the divine mystery, intimately experiencing God's love, yet this was completely unlike anything the Baptists describe as a godly experience. I couldn't turn to my Baptist minister father for help in such a matter for fear he would think this was of the devil. So I turned to Mr. Robinson, our English department chairman, and he in turn said, oh, I know who you're looking for. He introduced me to the American transcendentalists. I recognize myself in Ralph Waldo Emerson's description, even though it's different from my experience, but his description of the overwhelming nature of his first transcendental moment, which I want to read to you again. Try and picture yourself walking across that common with Waldo. Crossing a bare common in snow puddle at twilight, under a clouded sky without having in my thoughts any occurrence of special good fortune, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. I am glad to the brink of fear. Standing on bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part and part or particle of God. Most of Emerson's lectures, he stays in his head. This is one of the few times where he speaks straight out of his heart, unmediated. And Emerson, reading Emerson, eventually led me to Henry David Thoreau in his book, Walden, where he speaks unmediated right out of his heart a lot. And that would, 15 years later, lead us to move to Concord, where it's possible to lead a life full of transcendental, such transcendental moments. But now that is getting ahead of my story, so I want to come back. Like Emerson, I took to reading widely among the spiritual traditions of the world. Steve alluded to it. I've traveled with as many of them as I could hungrily find who would let me travel with them. I discovered records of transcendental moments experienced by many mystics over millennia, 
including spiritual teachers such as Zarathustra, Pythagoras, Chang Tzu, Siddhartha Gautama, Moses of Midian, Jesus of Nazareth, Antony of Egypt, Bernard of Claveau, Hildegard of Bingen, Francis of Assisi, Meister Eckhart, Teresa of Avila, and St. John of the Cross. Now, I don't have time this morning to give you an introduction to each of these folks, but any of them could dive into their writings, their mystical writings of connection with the divine mystery, and it's a joy, and it brings transcendence. But I will give you just two, so you have a flavor, because I discovered what I thought Christianity, Christian mysticism looked like looks very different in the eyes of the Christian mystics. I discovered transcendental moments are regularly celebrated in many parts of Christianity and every other world religion, just not Rhode Island Baptists and perhaps the tradition you grew up in. Here's an example from Meister Eckhart, one of my favorite, a 13th century professor of sacred theology in Paris and who then became Roman Catholic vicar general for Bohemia, a Christian nature mystic who had all the bona fides. He writes, when I was the stream when I was the forest, when I was still a field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was sky itself. No one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept. I wept and tears I had never known before. So I returned to the river. I returned to the mountains. I asked for their hand in marriage again. I begged. I begged to wed every object and creature, and when they accepted, God was ever-present in my arms. And he did not say, Where have you been? For then I knew my soul, every soul, has always held him. This is the Christian mystic that I needed to find at 13. It was reading and praying upon the mystics that I discovered that they experience, that I experience, that perhaps we all experience the nature of God very differently than expressed in traditional religious doctrines. So I've lost patience with talking about these religious doctrines and their description of God. It's a waste of time. Emerson said we are part and particle of God. I seek to find that spark in each of us and help to blow on this spark and bring it into full flame. Teresa Ravilla says it quite lyrically about this relationship to the divine. She writes, We bloomed in the spring. Our bodies are leaves of God. The apparent seasons of life and death our eyes can suffer. But our souls, dear, well, I will just say this forthright. They are God himself. We will never perish unless he does. God dissolved my mind, my sense of separation. I cannot describe now my intimacy with God. How dependent is your life's life, body's life on water and food and air? So I said to God, I will always be unless you cease to be. And my beloved replied, and I would cease to be if you died. Who knew in, in Rhode Island that transcendental moments were at the heart of Christianity? Transcendental moments were at the heart of all mystic souls and they're finding their connection with the divine. 
Traveling further afield over time, I found the same sentiment in many, many religions. I'll just quote you a brief one from the Upanishads. These are instruction manuals on how to reach transcendence with the divine. Rising above the senses and the mind, renouncing separate existence, the wise realizes the deathless self. The divine mystery our eyes cannot see, no words do words express. It cannot be grasped by the mind. We do not know, we cannot understand, but we can experience. We can experience transcendence, union with the divine mystery and everything in these transcendental moments. We can consciously cultivate and amplify such moments in our lives. However, it's not possible to try and translate that so you can go explain it to somebody else. Who were you one with? Well, I can't really describe him. What would it feel like? Well, I can't really describe him. Matter of fact, I can't give you a good description of all the experience. One of my favorite translations is from the 16th century Hindu mystic Kabir who got tired of these conversations. And this is what he wrote, paraphrased by an American translator. If I told you the truth about God, you would think I was an idiot. If I lied to you about the beautiful one, you might parade me through the streets shouting, this guy's a genius. The world has its pants on backwards. Most carry their values and knowledge in a jug that has a big hole in it. Thus, having a clear grasp of the situation, if I'm asked anything these days, I just laugh. Should someone try and engage you in a discussion of these things, it's a good fallback position. Just laugh. The Unitarian Universalist minister and mystic Jacob Trapp, who was one of the first UU mystics who was introduced to me, puts it this way. Everything that lives is holy. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. Matter is holy, the matrix of existence. Immerse yourself in that ocean, plunge into it where its deepest struggle in its currents, for it cradled you long ago in your pre-conscious existence, and it can lift you up to God. Unfortunately, from a mystic's perspective, the Protestant Reformation of Christianity, which began in Europe in the 16th century, was followed fairly quickly thereafter by the Age of Reason in the 17th century. So the Puritan Protestant separatists that settled this congregation in 1636 wanted to disenchant their religion from magical or mystical influences. They were deeply suspicious of those experiences. At best, they had no place in their theology for these transcendental moments. At worst, they feared them as being from the devil and apt to lead good Christians astray. Which brings me back to Ralph Waldo Emerson and the Concord Transcendentalists. Emerson came from a long line of ministers, from his father, his grandfather, and all the way back to the founding minister of First Parish in Concord, Reverend Peter Bulkley, who wrote a wonderful treatise on reason in religion. Yet at Harvard Divinity School, Emerson began re reading exciting new works by the German idealist theologians like Immanuel Kant and English romantic poets like William Wordsworth. He actually copied out Wordsworth Tintern Abbey in his spiritual journey. This is the young man in his early 20s encountering something that goes beyond Unitarian reason. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize nature and the language of sense, the anchor of my purest thoughts, 
the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. This is a different place to find connection with the divine mystery. Emerson, as a young man, read incredibly widely from ancient philosophers like Anaximander of Miletus, Pythagoras of Samos, Zoroaster of Babylon, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, as well as his near contemporaries Spinoza, Schelling, Kant, Carlyle, and Coleridge. The American Transcendentalist movement grew out of a wish to re-enchant our spiritual journeys without reintroducing supernaturalism. We just have to remember those things that actually happened to us. The key for these American transcendentalists was to focus upon transcendental moments of experience and explore their spiritual journeys through them. That is what it means to be a transcendentalist. As Emerson said in his 1840 lecture, which he called the transcendentalist and was responding to the Unitarian magazine who accused him of being a mystic. What is popularly called transcendentalism among us is idealism. Idealism as it appears in 1842, as thinkers, mankind have been divided into two sects, materialists and idealists. The first class beginning to think from the data of the senses, the second class perceive that the senses are not final, and say, the senses give us representations of things, but what are the things themselves? They cannot tell. Now, Emerson's protege, Henry David Thoreau, found his transcendental moments mostly by walking extensively in the woods around Concord. He went so far as to say that only in wildness is the preservation of the world. So I'm going to end by giving you three brief glimpses of my own transcendental moments walking in the wildness of Concord, and then invite you to take part two of the sermon on your own when it's convenient to go forth in the woods. First in Estbrook Woods in springtime. Beginning in the Carlisle Swamp, I make my way south upon the hard-packed dirt of this muddy cart path. It brings transcendence. It is a shady country lane traversing along the higher ground between swampy bogs and crisscrossing occasional brooks and small streams. The irregular stone walls around old fields and homesteads gradually give way to a more forested environment. Wildness exists at the edges of civilization, but especially here in these woods. Then on the Emerson Thoreau Amble Trail, which starts just a short walk from here as it passes through the town forest. Our trail now crosses over into the Hapgood Wright Town Forest. We have left the formal domain of Concord Village and are entering tangled woodlands. Just a few steps beyond civilization, you can feel the woods' wildness. Despite marshy areas continuing off to the left and right, we are following an Esker Ridge path that is elevated and drier. This is a pleasant change in vegetation as a result. It is wildness enough for me to surrender to the spirit of this place. I focus my breathing and my thoughts, living fully, life fully and engaged, living transcendentally. I breathe more deeply. A weight has been lifted from my spirit. And finally, circumnavigating Walden Pond in just about any season. The woods around the pond reflect wildness at every season of the year. In the springtime, the bursting forth of new and vibrant life is glorious as one circumambulates the pond. On warm summer afternoons, the nearside beach is swarming with families and swimmers. During the height of fall leaf peeping, the glorious colors of leaves put death in a proper perspective. And the thick winter ice, beloved by skaters and ice fishermen, makes for a wonderful ice hop if we skip stones, as Emerson reported he used to do. There is a real beauty in every changing weather condition, time of day and season. Explore them all. Walden Pond has become part of my own spiritual journey. On pleasant days, I might meditate at the former site 
of Thoreau's cabin or wander along the pond's rocky shores and azure waters. I might circumnavigate Ice Fort Cove and traverse the deep-cut woods, each of which has its own stories, perhaps heading over to the cliffs above Fairhaven Bay and looking across to Canantum. I am at home in the woods and enjoying every transcendental moment. Perhaps one day you'll join me. Blessed be.